Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Happy Father's Day, Christ Community Church. Yeah, yeah, it's about time you said that to me. Good. And uh, welcome, those of you who are guests. By the way, I hope you always, across our four campuses, we got three other campuses joining us right now uh, via live stream, so welcome to DeKalb and Blackberry Creek and Streamwood Bartlett. I hope you always feel the freedom here during a special music number to get to your feet and just raise your hands while you're singing praise. I'm going to be watching some World Cup soccer this afternoon. I guarantee I will not stay on the sofa. I will be leaping up into the air, and if you can't do that about Jesus. Like, what can you do it about, right? So always feel welcome to be as exuberant as you want in your praise. We welcome it here. Let's pray together. We're going to ask God to teach us from his holy word. So uh, God, right now, as we bow before you, we pray that you'd open our eyes to see truths in your word that we would miss otherwise. Uh, God, your word says that spiritually speaking, we're all pretty blind. And it's only when the light of the good news of Jesus shines into our lives that we're able to see truths that we would otherwise miss. So we're dependent on you to be our teacher today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you have probably heard Jesus' short story called the parable of the prodigal son. And ring a bell, parable of the prodigal son. Uh, Pastor Clayton preached an entire sermon on it several months ago at Christ Community Church, one of Jesus' most famous teachings. It's about a, a young, rebellious teenage kid who decides he's had enough of living under his, his dad's roof. He wants no more of his father's rules. So he asks for his share of the family inheritance, and he moves out. He goes far away, and he quickly spends his way through all all his money on loose women and cheap booze and video games. It's my update on the, the parable, all right? And then he comes to his senses because he's destitute. And he says, you know, I've been kind of a jerk, and my dad has really been a pretty good father. So I wonder what would happen if I go home and I ask my dad's forgiveness. I say, I say Dad, I've been so wrong. And so on his way home, his dad sees him from afar and races to embrace his son. And the son says, Dad, I'm so sorry. And Dad forgives him. And, and uh, you know, the moral of the story Jesus is teaching is that we've got a heavenly father who we distance ourselves from by doing stupid, sinful things. But if we'll just repent, if we'll come back his direction, if we'll say sorry, if we'll seek his forgiveness, he'll welcome us with open arms, he'll welcome us home. The dad in the story even throws a party for his prodigal son. So end of story. Uh, well, not quite. See, see, the story of the prodigal son is not the story of one alienated son, it's actually the story of two alienated sons. The younger son is the one we all know about, the prodigal son who runs away and spends all that money. He had alienated himself from his dad because of his badness. But he had an older brother who was alienated from his dad because of his goodness. Yeah, the older, older brother thought he was pretty darn good. In fact, when his dad threw a party for the younger brother who had returned, the older brother was furious, wouldn't even go into the party. Dad came outside, he said, you know, what's going on? He goes, I can't believe you're doing this for my brother who spent all your money. See, I've, I've been the good kid all along. 
Okay, I did my chores, I got good grades in school, I was never in trouble with the law, and what have you done for me? What have you ever done for me? When, when did you throw a party for me with Texas barbecue and a cool DJ, huh? Uh, he was expressing a worldview known as moralism. Okay, moralism is the belief that if I live a basically good life, which I obviously do, then I should expect to be rewarded for my goodness. God should look on me with favor, bless my life, grant me eternal salvation, because this is what I deserve. This is what I deserve, moralism. We're in the fifth week of a six-part series called Worldview. A person's worldview is how they look at life. We all have, each of us has a personal worldview. It's like a, a set of glasses through which we see everything around us. Now, our worldview glasses has been, ha, have been formed by our parents' values, uh, by the news media, by our friends' opinions, by the movies we watch, the books we read, but our personal worldviews have also been formed by some mega worldviews out there. And so during the course of the series, we're looking at six mega worldviews, a dominant popular themes in our culture at large that shape our lives. We're looking at these six worldviews from the perspective of God's word. Why? Because we don't want the world around us forcing us into its mold. We want to be remolded from within by God's view of things, by God's worldview. So, so far in this series, we have covered the mega worldviews of individualism, of pluralism, of secularism. Last week it was naturalism. And by the way, we brought in a speaker from the West Coast, from California, uh, a popular radio talk show host and expert on the topic of naturalism, written books on the topic. If you've never read the book Tactics, a brilliant book. And if you missed it last weekend, I would encourage you to go online and get that sermon on naturalism. Now today, again, the topic is moralism. And I want you to turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 8. Okay, see if you could find the Gospel of John. And as you're turning, uh, I want to tell you that we don't have the particular passage we're looking at today in John 8 does not appear in the earliest copies of the New Testament that we have. So let me explain what's going on here. Okay, th this Gospel, this, this uh, biography of Jesus was written by Jesus' very closest friend, a fisherman named John, one of Jesus' original disciples. So this is an eyewitness first century account of Jesus' life and ministry. Of course, the question becomes, how do I know that the Gospel of John that I have in my Bible today bears any resemblance to the biography that John originally wrote? You ever wonder that? You hear people say, well, you know, you can't trust the Bible because it got passed down from person to person to person and over time it was all distorted. So what we have in our hands is nothing like the original. Well, let me tell you how they reconstruct, how so scholars reconstruct any piece of ancient literature. Not only the Bible, but, but any ancient document. What they do is they gather together as many of the copies, the ancient copies that were made of that document, and they compare them with each other. 
Okay, and, and the things that they find in common, they keep. That must have been part of the original because all of the copies say the same thing. And those thing, things that are oddballs, they, they sort of leave out. They say, well, that must not have been part of the original. So the more copies you have of an ancient document, the, the more likely you can reconstruct it uh, very closely to the original. So for example, writings of Plato. You heard of Plato in history class? Not Plato like the Plato you play with, but I'm talking like the Greek philosopher Plato. Okay, his writings, we have 250 ancient copies of bits and pieces of Plato's writings. That's how we've reconstructed, that's how we know what Plato wrote. How many ancient copies do you think we have of portions of the New Testament? 250 for Plato, how about the New Testament? 35,000. 35, which means with all of these copies, we're able to compare them with each other, and we have an amazingly accurate document in our hands that bears total resemblance to the original. Now, what does this have to do with John chapter 8? Well, uh, interestingly, John chapter 8 was not included in some of the oldest uh, uh, copies of the Gospel of John. And so you'll find a little footnote in your Bible that says exactly what I just said. It's not, you know, it's not found in the, in the earliest copies. And so, so you, you may be thinking to yourself, well, if it wasn't, then wh why are we going to study today something that never took place? Okay, well, I didn't say it never took place. I said it was probably not part of the original biography that John wrote. Now, now John wrote something at the end of his biography Chapter 21, verse 25, the very last verse in the Gospel of John, John says, Jesus did many other things as well. He did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. You hear what John's saying? He's saying, hey, Jesus did a lot of things that I just didn't have room to include in my biography. And most Bible scholars have concluded, as they've studied the passage we're about to look at in John 8, that this is one of those authentic passages. Not written by John, and so shouldn't have been included in his biography, but definitely an authentic event in, in the life of Jesus. You with me? And that's why we study it today. And that's, I give you all this background because I want you to know the great lengths to which scholars have gone to make sure that the book you hold in your hand is an exact reproduction of what was originally written. Don't let anybody ever tell you the book can't be trusted historically and, and whatnot. It's an amazing piece of literature. So John chapter 8 and our topic is, is moralism. When we look through the world, the worldview glasses of moralism, our vision is, is distorted in four significant ways. So if you haven't taken your outline out yet, I encourage you to do so. Fill it in as we go along or look it up on your phone app and follow along. First of all, moralism gives us, number one, a judgmental view of others. A judgmental view of others. I want you to look with me at the second verse of John chapter 8 and I'll begin reading the story. It says, at dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Whoa, what do you say? What do you say? Let's stop right there. Okay, so this is the word of the Lord. 
thanks be to God, should say that. Uh, Jesus is in the temple courts in Jerusalem. Okay, there was an open courtyard around the temple and the local rabbis would often gather their, their followers, their students, and teach them the law of God. So Jesus has gathered with his disciples and he is teaching them God's word. However, there are infiltrators in the group. Okay, verse three tells us that some, some teachers of the law and Pharisees were there as well. Now, these are guys who were really meticulous in the keeping of God's law, his Old Testament laws, God's rules. And they, they, they were law keepers, and they looked down their noses at anybody who was a lawbreaker. In fact, they had brought such a person with them on this occasion. Verse 4 says, they brought with them a woman who had been caught in adultery. That's a major breaking of God's law. Now, do you notice something wrong with the story at this point? How many people does it take to do adultery? Eh, at least two. <laughs> it takes two to tango. So where is the guy? If the woman's been caught in the very act of adultery, where is the dude in this case? Now, it's possible that he gave them the slip, that he escaped. It's also possible because this was a very chauvinistic culture that the guy was getting off scot-free. You don't blame the guy. Everybody knows it's the woman's fault. She's a seductress. And, you know, there was no Me Too campaign back in the first century. And so maybe she was taking all the blame for this adultery. Okay. And they bring her before Jesus. What is Jesus going to do with this woman? You see how this, this game is, is played. Just a side note here. You know, these uh, religious leaders were so self-righteously smug. Their incessant rule-keeping had led them to believe that they, they were more morally superior, at least to this, this woman caught in adultery. That's moralism, a judgmental view of others. But the side note is this. Is all judging wrong? Okay, how many of you have heard somebody say, Jesus taught us never to judge others, right? Well, that's actually not true. Uh, Jesus said that it's wrong to judge others in certain cases where, where your judging is condescending or it's hip, uh, hypercritical or it's based on your own opinions. That kind of judging is judgmentalism. Jesus says don't do it. However, Jesus also taught that on occasion judging is the right thing to do. John chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says, Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. So Jesus tells us to judge correctly. How do you judge correctly? Well, you judge correctly when you judge according to God's word, not according to your own opinions. And you judge correctly when the wrong you point out is for the benefit of the person you're pointing it out to. You're concerned that they're doing damage to themselves and to the people around them. So judging correctly is, is when you judge in a way that is wise and gracious and demonstrates concern for the other person. But back to moralism, moralism promotes the wrong kind of judging. Moral, moralism promotes a judgmental view of others. Moralists feel better about their own goodness when they contrast it with other people's badness. Let me say that again. Moralists feel better about their own goodness when they contrast it with other people's badness. That's what the religious leaders in John 8 were doing, bringing Jesus this woman who'd been caught in adultery. It's what I saw a politician do recently on the news. I was watching a news show, eating my breakfast one morning a week ago, 
And the topic of conversation uh, was a, a, a recent talk show where ex-president Bill Clinton was confessing once again to his wrongdoing in the affair with Monica Lewinsky. And so on this new show that I was watching, this politician was being asked the question, do you think that the ex-president is sincere in his apology? And this ex-politician, or this politician said about the ex-president, he said, no, I don't believe he's sincere. This is going to follow him all of his life. And he spoke very condescendingly about Bill Clinton. And what I found disturbing about the interview is, is that I happen to know that this particular politician has been in the news because he's gone through three broken marriages, moving on to the next woman, uh, you know, cheating with the next woman while he's still married to the previous wife. But at least he hasn't committed an affair with Monica Lewinsky. You see, you see how the game is played? Moralism helps us feel good about ourselves by pointing out the bad in others. And we're all tempted to do this. You know, we're, we're all guilty of telling ourselves on occasion, well, I may drink a little too much, but, but at least I don't do drugs like my friend Jack. Or, or I, you know, I may be sleeping with my boyfriend, but at least I'm not sleeping with a different guy every day of the week like my coworker Lisa. I may not be the, the world's best parent, but at least my kids have finished school, unlike my neighbor Max's kids. Yeah, I may not follow Christ wholeheartedly, but hey, it's the weekend, I'm in church, which is more than I can say for other members of my family. I may gossip a little bit, hey, don't we all gossip a little bit? But at least I don't, don't drop the F-bomb in conversations like my workout partner, Drew. Sorry, Drew, if you're here. <laughs> this, this is moralism. You know, I'm pretty good leads to a judgmental view of others. You get it? Good. Number two, moralism leads to an angry view of God. An angry view of God. Let's go back to the story. We read through verse five, but I'm gonna backtrack, pick it up in the middle of verse four. Okay, they say, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So these religious leaders were out to get Jesus, and they had just baited a trap, and it was pretty good bait. This was a conundrum. How would Jesus answer? What do you do with this woman caught in adultery? See, whichever way he answers, he's in trouble. Uh, if he says, well, you know, you should let her go, well, they could quote Leviticus 20, verse 10, God's Old Testament law, which says that marital unfaithfulness should be punished by capital uh, punishment. And so Jesus, here he is trying to be a rabbi, and he's got no religious authority at all. He's dissing the Old Testament law. Or, or Jesus could say, well, okay, let's stone her. That's what the Old Testament law says, but then everybody calls into question, is this guy really the compassionate person he's made himself out to be? Stone this woman? Are you kidding me? And it would really get him in trouble with the local authorities because only the Romans had the right to sentence somebody to death. So whichever way Jesus goes, he's in deep weeds. They were out to get him, which, by the way, this story probably took place the last week of his life. They did eventually get him. Why? Why are they so angry? Why are they so honked off with Jesus? 
It's because Jesus, Jesus would not be controlled by them. Jesus would not do what they wanted him to do. Jesus would not behave like a proper Messiah should behave. All moralists get angry with God for the same reason. God doesn't do what God's supposed to do. What's God supposed to do? Well, God's supposed to give us what we deserve. God's supposed to give us what we we deserve. And moralism teaches us that if we do good things, then God is obligated to do good things for us. So, So if we keep God's rules, then God is obliged to respond positively to all our prayer requests. You know, if we keep our nose clean, then God is obliged to provide us with a good job and an ample income. God is obliged to protect us from serious accidents and all illness. God is obliged to cause our kids to grow up great. God is obliged to make sure it doesn't rain on the day I got tickets to Wrigley to see the Cubs play. And I do what God wants me to do. Now God should do what I want him to do. But what happens when God doesn't dance to our tune? You know, what, what happens when I've been a basically good person, not perfect, not perfect, but better than average, and I lose my job? What happens when I've been doing my best to follow God and my girlfriend breaks up with me, or I get the flu on vacation, or my financial investments go bust, or my wife and I can't get pregnant? What happens, I'll tell you what happens, I get angry with God because God isn't keeping his side of the bargain. And let's just review the terms of the bargain here. I do what God wants me to do, so God does what I want him to do. That's moralism. Unfortunately, God doesn't make those kind of deals with us because he is all wise and completely sovereign, and so he does what he knows is best, not what we think is best. I had lunch with a, a new friend about a week ago, a young guy, 29-year-old guy, and he was sharing with me his, his uh, spiritual journey story. He, he was raised in a home where he heard about Jesus from his mom and dad, and he was a good kid, and he kept the rules, and he went to church regularly, and he went off to college, and something happened his senior year that hardened his heart against God. He was a soccer player. He'd gone, to, he'd gone to university, a big university on the East Coast to play soccer. In fact, he had dreams of becoming a professional soccer player. Well, his senior year, they had a stellar, uh, stellar team, expected to take it all. Uh, but shortly into the season, they lost their lead scorer. He had to be dropped from the team. And this friend himself, he got a a pulled hamstring, and so he was on the bench for a while. And one bad thing after another happened until the end of the season, they'd won a total of three games. And he was furious with God because he'd been a good kid. And so why wasn't God blessing him with soccer success? Why, Why wasn't God fulfilling his dream as God should? See, that's moralism. I'm a good guy. God should bless me accordingly. And if God doesn't, well, then God better get his act together because I'm ticked. Now, we've all been there, right? You, 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 you may be in that place today. There's something not going down as it should. God better get on the stick because I've been doing my part. Moralism leads to anger with God. Thirdly, it leads to an exalted view of myself. 
It leads to an exalted view of myself. Pick it up, second half of verse 6. So they're looking for a, a reason to accuse Jesus. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with a woman still standing there. Now, isn't it interesting, at the beginning of this story, the religious leaders are full of themselves. You know, they are smug in their self-righteousness, heads held high. But by the end of their confrontation with Jesus, they're slinking away, heads bowed. Moralism initially, initially gives us an exalted view of ourselves. And there are a couple of reasons why moralism is so successful at puffing us up. For, for, first reason, we can always find people who are worse than us with whom to compare ourselves. Okay, we've already hinted at this one. We can always find people who are worse than us with whom we can, we can compare ourselves. And that's what moralism encourages us to do. You know, the religious leaders in this story, they compared themselves with a woman caught in adultery, and they were obviously morally superior. They weren't adulterers. But Jesus challenged them to stop comparing themselves with this morally flawed lady and to start comparing themselves with what? to start comparing themselves with God's perfect standard of right and wrong, to what the Bible calls sin. Look, look at what Jesus says to them, verse 7. He says, let any one of you who is without sin, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. Now, these guys knew their Bibles. They knew their Bibles better than any of us. And so, so they knew that the Bible not only condemned sexual immorality, adultery, but they knew the Bible condemned other sins as well. They knew that the Bible condemned greed. They knew that the Bible condemns racial injustice. The Bible condemns broken promises. The Bible condemns dishonest business practices. The Bible condemns slander and lack of concern for the poor and failure to set aside one day every week to worship God and disrespect for, for parents and on and on the list goes. So if we have an exalted view of ourselves, if we think we're pretty darn good, then God's standard of right and wrong in the Bible should bring us down to earth. It should convince us that we're all seriously flawed sinners. You know, about 100 years ago, the London Times ran a special article to feature in their newspaper. They asked their readers to respond to the question, what's wrong with the world? Okay, and then they would print the answers then. What's wrong with the world? And one of the shortest answers came from famous novelist G.K. Chesterton, a philosopher of the day. And it was kind of interesting that he wrote such a short response given the fact that he, he usually wrote long novels. So what's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton wrote, Dear sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? Well, if you, if you know what the Bible says about sin, I am. You know, but moralism gives me a much more exalted view of myself. 
Moralism encourages me to compare myself with others. And I can always find people who are worse sinners than, than I am. And so can you. Your, your, your neighbor. Or, or that kid who, whose locker is right next to yours at school. Or your business competitor. You're not as bad as them. Okay, second, the second reason that moralism convinces us of our basic goodness is we tend to compartmentalize our morality. We compartmentalize our morality. So if I'm hitting the ball in this area of my moral life, but I'm striking out in this area, what area do you think I focus on and what area do you think I ignore? I focus on, well, you know, I'm a pretty good student. And I ignore, and I've been lying to my parents about where I hang out with my friends on Friday nights. You know, I I focus on, I'm really generous with my employees, and I ignore, and I'm seriously flirting with one of them. You know, I, I, I focus on, I spend lots of time with my kids, and I ignore, and after I put them to, to bed, I go online and watch porn. You know, I, I focus on, I, I dress modestly and appropriately, and I ignore, and I spend lots of money on the clothes I wear. We, we compartmentalize our morality. We focus on where we're doing good, and we ignore where we're doing bad. You following this? You know, in John Perry's biography of Chuck Colson, he says this is what Colson used to do. He would strain out gnats and he would swallow camels, morally speaking. You've heard that expression before. So in in minor matters, he was a man of integrity. In major areas, he was a scoundrel. Okay, Chuck Colson was Nixon's hatchet man. He did the president's dirty work. His job was to uh, totally annihilate the reputations of all political rivals with dirty tricks. And, and if you know anything about his, his history, you wonder how the guy could sleep at night. And the reason he could sleep is because he compartmentalized his morality. In other areas, he was squeaky clean. He kept a squeaky clean office. I mean, he was known as the guy when, a, when an old friend from uh, military days, from the Marines, came and said, hey, can you help me get a, a military contract here? He said, no, that would be a conflict of interest. I can't do that. You know, when, when, when a gift giver would give him a box of frozen steaks or a bottle of whiskey, he would pay the gift giver for the gift just to be totally above board. When, it, when he took you out to lunch, on a business lunch, he would expense your meal, but he would pay for his own meal out of his own pocket. He didn't want anybody accusing him of, of any nonsense, right? But in other areas of his life, totally flawed. And so, so he could always focus on those areas of integrity and ignore the horrible things he was doing in other areas of his life. You know, just, just like these guys, these religious leaders in the story we're looking at in John chapter 8 today. Okay, they would focus on the areas where they're succeeding and totally ignore their blind spots. Which is why Jesus knelt down and he started riding in the dirt. Did you, you pick that up in the story? Okay, in, in verse 6, take a look at the text again. Verse 6, it says, Jesus, instead of responding right away, he kneels down and he begins to ride in the dirt. And then he stands up and he says to them, hey, if you're, if you're without sin, go ahead and throw a stone. And then verse 8 says, he knelt down a second time. Now, what is Jesus riding in the dirt? Well, the passage never says 
it drives Bible scholars crazy. They debated for centuries. What was Jesus writing in the dirt? One of my favorite speculations is this. Someone has said that Jesus was writing in the dirt some of the specific sins of members of the group who were accusing the woman. See, he wasn't about to allow them to compartmentalize their morality, to ignore some of their, their own transgressions. So Jesus wrote in the dust, Simon cheats his customers, or, or Jacob verbally abuses his wife, or Benjamin, he gambles on the camel races. <laughs> I like that thought. So no wonder these guys dropped their, their rocks and they slinked away. See, moralism had given them an exalted view of themselves, but Jesus brought them down to earth. Jesus helped them realize that they weren't really, really good guys, that they were actually garden variety sinners just like everybody else. And listen, friends, if you go through life thinking you're a, you're a really, really good guy, now you're not perfect, but you're really, really good then you're ignoring many of your own sins and you will never, you'll never get around to seeing your need for a savior. You'll never see your need for Jesus. You, you may look at Jesus as a helper in times of trouble, as a role model, as an inspiration, but savior? No, 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 moralism teaches you that only bad people need to be saved and you're not a bad people, you're a good people. Jesus warned against this kind of thinking. Jesus described himself on one occasion as a doctor, and he said that's why only people who see themselves as morally and spiritually unhealthy come to me. You see, if you think you're pretty good, you don't need Dr. Jesus. Have you ever come to Jesus? as the only one who can save you? Are you still trying to save yourself with your own goodness? Or have you come to the place in your life where you recognize that morally speaking, you're, you're somewhat bankrupt and you need to come to the one who died on the cross. He came to the planet to give his life on the cross to take the penalty your sins deserve. If you weren't a sinner, he wouldn't have had to die on the cross. God wouldn't have had to send him to planet earth. He came to die on the cross to take the penalty your sins deserve. Have you ever surrendered your life to him and owned up to your badness and said, only you can make me good? Put your whole, whole trust, your hope in him as your savior, as the king of your life. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that before we close in a few moments, but there's, there's one more truth I want to pick up from this story about moralism. Moralism leaves us with a confused view of obedience. A confused view of obedience. Let me read the closing verses of the story to you. Verse 10, Jesus straightened up and he asked her, see, everybody slinked off. He says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, now go and leave your life of sin. A lot of people who have heard this story, they conveniently forget how it ends. Okay, their, their version of the story, minus the ending, goes something like this. Well, once upon a time, there were some self-righteous religious leaders, and they tried to get Jesus to condemn a woman who had been guilty of sexual indiscretions. But, but Jesus, Jesus told them to quit judging other people. And then Jesus told the woman, I don't condemn you. 
Moral of the story, we should all lighten up with regard to our moral standards of right and wrong. Come on. So it really is at the point of the story that we should all lighten up with regard to moral standards of right and wrong. Because if that's the moral of the story, surprisingly, Jesus doesn't lighten up. He tells the woman the closing line of the story is, go now and leave your life of sin. Stop doing this. You know, just because Jesus is willing to forgive our sins when we surrender our lives to Jesus doesn't mean that Jesus throws out his high moral standards for our lives with respect to right and wrong. You know, some people think that because Jesus forgives us, we can pretty much live as we please. You know, no big deal if we don't do what Jesus tells us to do in his word. No big deal if we do the things this book says don't do. Because at the end of the day, we're forgiven. End of story. Well, no. You know, it's true that obedience to God's standards can't save us. That's what I've been saying all along this morning. If you think you're good enough to save yourself, you're, you're seriously mistaken. Obedience to God's standards can't save you. However, once you put your trust in Jesus, you surrender your life to him, you're forgiven. Your desire to obey God now stems not from a, a need to earn forgiveness, but from a thankful heart for the salvation that's been given to you as a gift. Do you see the difference? Now you want to obey God. Now you want to do what God says. By the way, I just read a new Gallup poll, you know, interviews with Americans, a poll of uh, Americans, and a variety of moral topics. You know, what do you think? Is this wrong? Is this not wrong? It's amazing how many moral issues the Bible says don't do this that our culture now says it's perfectly okay to do it. So does it not matter anymore? No, once you surrender to Christ and he saves you for all eternity, you want to say thank Your obedience is not to get something out of him. Your obedience is out of gratitude for what he's done for you. Let me tell a closing story to illustrate what I've just been saying. Then we'll wrap up. Okay, the story's told of a peasant farmer who once upon a time grew this ginormous carrot. And when he got the carrot out of the ground, he thought, I want to give this to the king. You know, he loved the king. And so he brought this gift of a huge carrot to the king, and the king was pleased with it. And the king said, this is, this is the most beautiful carrot I've ever seen. And I, I'm going to give you as a gift a large parcel of land because I want you to grow all sorts of carrots. He sent him off. Well, there was a self-righteous nobleman watching this whole thing play out. And he thought, hmm, so that's how the system works. Okay. So he brought the king a great, big, beautiful black stallion. And in the back of his, his mind, he's thinking, I wonder what the king's going to give me. You know, maybe a whole herd of horses. I saw what he gave the peasant farmer. The king gave him nothing. The guy was perplexed. And the king explained to him, he said that the peasant farmer gave me his carrot, but you've actually been giving yourself the horse. You see the difference? See, when you come to Christ, you, after you've surrendered your life to him, you want to give him your obedience. You want to find out what's in this book, how you can please him, because he's given everything to you. You do, do it out of, of a loving response. You don't do it like the nobleman out of a desire to get something in return. You're not trying to earn your salvation. You're not trying to earn God's answers to prayers and blessings for your lives. You're obeying because you love God. 
By the way, if you're looking for a church, if you're a guest with us today that teaches the Bible so you know what obedience looks like, we welcome you back to Christ Community Church. That's what we do every week around here. We teach from the Bible what God, the kind of life God calls us to. We encourage people to read the book on their own all through the week, to get in a small group. We've got uh, you know, 300 and some community groups where people study the Bible together and apply it to their lives. We invite you to join us. Now, I'm going to close in prayer, and then we're going to sing a song of praise to Christ as we end. But would you bow your heads with me across our four campuses? I told you a moment ago I'd give you an opportunity, if you've never surrendered to Christ, to do it now. And let me just warn you about something as we bow before God. If you grew up in a very moral home, or if you grew up in a very religious home, you were Catholic, you were Methodist, you were Baptist, you were what, what, you know, the more church going and moral your family, the more likely that you adopted unknowingly the worldview of moralism. And in the back of your mind, you're you're figuring that you're somehow going to be good enough If you just keep God's laws good enough, you're going to earn your salvation, and you can't. And so as we bow before Almighty God, the first thing you need to acknowledge, if you want to begin a relationship with Jesus, you have to own up to your badness. You have to say in your own words, and I encourage you to say it right now in the quietness of your heart, God, I'm a sinner. You know, if I compare my life to the standard of right and wrong I find in the Bible, I fall abysmally short. God, there's anger in my life, lust in my life, self-centeredness in my life, gossip, dishonesty, any number of things. I'm a wreck. Can you say that before God? If you're too proud to acknowledge that, then you're not going to come to Dr. Jesus today. But if you can say that from your heart and mean it, then you're moving in the right direction. The next thing you want to say is, I understand, Jesus, that you died on the cross to take the penalty for sin. I want you to be my Savior. Would you take my sin's penalty? Just ask him to do it right now, humbly, like the the young boy in the prodigal son story who came back to Dad and said, Dad, I'm so sorry. Can you say to God right now, I'm sorry, and I want the forgiveness that was purchased for me by Jesus when he died on the cross. And then lastly, can you tell Jesus, I want to learn what it means to follow you. I want to learn what it means to say thank you with my life. I want to learn what your word teaches about a moral life. Not because I'm trying to get something out of you, but because I want to say thank you. Would you pray that prayer from your heart right now? If you do, what you're doing is surrendering to Christ. That's what you're doing right now. And Lord Jesus, I want to pray for those who are surrendering to you. And perhaps it's been a long time since they've been in a church, or maybe they've been in church for weeks and months and years and still been depending on their own goodness instead of on the saving grace of Jesus. And I pray today they would turn over full control of their lives to him. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.